in my stage now, I can look back and say, thank gosh, that didn't happen because that would have been a disaster. But it was kind of embarrassing. I mean, that would be my go-to. I don't want to live anymore because I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it to you. Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in, but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Digging Through Dominoes, Episode 6. I hope you are ready to rock and roll the subjects we have going today, which are, what are the core issues? of CPTSD, causes, risk factors, problems as adults, as well as some personal revelatory examples. One that was as recent as last weekend. So let's go on and get into this. I'm going to be referencing actually a couple of books here, one more than the other. The first book I'm going to be referencing is called Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. If you don't have this book, I highly recommend that you get a copy of this book. This was life-changing for me. And I think the reason that this particular book was more impactful on me than others have been is because Dr. Walker actually has complex PTSD. And he is speaking from personal experiences as well as those of a practicing clinician. This book, once again, I have no affiliate links. I'm just saying this mega help me, it might mega help you. It's awesome, awesome. Once again, Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Dr. Pete Walker. And it's just been so phenomenally helpful Okay, my notes. Let me get to my notes here. I'm going to read you what the National Institute of Health says about complex PTSD, complex trauma, which summates a total of precipitating trauma. I think you need like a PhD to understand this. Actually, you don't. It's just, I think we've been so dumbed down in society today that you have to stop and think about some of the things that they're saying here. Complex trauma, which summates a total of precipitating traumatic events to complex PTSD, is currently being described as a horrific, threatening, entrapping, and generally interpersonal events. Things such as prolonged domestic violence, prolonged DV, childhood intimate AB, along with the victim's inability to escape due to multiple constraints, whether these are social, physical, psychological, environmental, or other. The NIH goes on to say, complex, P- complex PTSD includes most of the core symptoms of PTSD, specifically flashbacks, experience, um, which would be, you know, I think everyone knows what a flashback is, but that's sort of reliving a traumatic event. A lot of times, you are not even aware you are reliving that event. It's so subconscious. It could be, you know, in infancy before you have verbal language and it's something that you're reliving. And I tell you, the core issues of this are frightening. All right. Complex PTSD includes most of the core symptoms of PTSD, specifically flashbacks, experiencing the traumatic event as stated before, numbness, blunt emotion, avoidance, detachment from people. I saw that in my mom and my dad to a certain extent. Detachment from events and environmental triggers of the predisposing trauma, as well as autonomic hyperarousal. And it's not what you're thinking. That is mainly, it's like a hypervigilant state When you are constantly, you have learned over the years, the world is not a safe place. You can be brushing your teeth and someone walks in and you think you're going to die. You can be, you're just in a constant state of hyper arousal, hyper vigilance. And as I said, I think in a previous episode, 
it can be humiliating. It People don't understand it and they make fun of you. They don't realize that what they've done, they have just triggered something in you that could be very primal, very early on, that had you afraid you were not going to survive. Okay, on with the NIH. It also includes affective dysregulation, adverse disrupted belief systems about oneself as being diminished, worthless, having severe difficulty in forming meaningful, substantial relationships. We're going to go in that a little bit more personally with me in a little bit. And maintaining meaningful personal relationships, as well as having deep-rooted feelings of guilt, shame, or failure. So there you go. There is it in a nutshell. Now, in 1992, the, the term complex PTSD was first addressed in Dr. Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, and is commonly, as you know, abbreviated as CPTSD. It often develops in childhood. It can develop with any repeated adult trauma as well. Oh my gosh, there's so much. Right. Currently, CPTSD is not in the DSM-5. The DSM-5 is the manual. It's the Diagnostic and, St- Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And that is how doctors are paid in this country. So if, if they give you a diagnosis of complex trauma and it doesn't fit one of their code numbers, the doctors aren't going to get paid. However, it is going to be included in the International Classifications of Diseases, the 11th Revision, ICD-11, which is considered to be the gold standard by the World Health Organization. Pete Walker, in his book, Complex PTSD, From Surviving to Thriving, describes complex PTSD as this, a more severe form of post-traumatic stress disorder It is delineated, he says, by five of its key factors. Those factors are, or common features, I guess I should say, which are emotional flashbacks, toxic shame, self-abandonment, a vicious inner critic. You know, the little person that kind of sits on your, your shoulder and tells you you're horrible, you're worthless. Just do it. Get it over with. You'll, you're never going to be worth anything. That's your vicious self-critic. It's basically whoever conditioned you as a child, you're hearing them again. It's parroted in your mind over and over and over. It is so ingrained in us as humans. So he, he, P. Walker says that emotional flashbacks are one of the most common symptoms of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. He states that survivors of traumatizing abandonment, we're going to go into that, are extremely prone to emotional flashbacks. When I read that in his book, I felt validated. I felt like I was a normal person because my responses to seemingly benign circumstances were were very, where they may upset someone, they upset me to the point that I didn't feel I was worth enough to go on. Did I say that right? I I didn't feel I was worth enough to go on. It kept mimicking back what I had heard as a child, as an infant, as a teenager, and as an adult. P. Walker says that these emotional flashbacks are sudden and often prolonged regressions to the overwhelming to the overwhelming feelings of fear, shame, alienation, rage, grief, and depressions, and include triggering our fight-flight responses. Mr. Walker's theory, or Dr. Walker's theory, said he believes that these emotional flashbacks can last any from moments, days, to weeks on end. In reading through this book, Healing Your Emotional Self by Beverly Engel, 
reading through several of Pete Walker's books. I have Complex PTSD from, from Surviving to Thriving, as well as The Tao of Fully Feeling. I have another one of his books downstairs. I can't remember the name of it right now. And then there is a book called, it's by a picture, R.A., I cannot remember his last name, but it is The Body Keeps the Score. I have not gotten into that one yet, but my gosh, the title of that pretty much says everything. The body does remember what you might not remember consciously. Your body's going to remember. If you're in a situation where you're feeling unsure, your body is going to tense up. Your body's going to be on alert and you're going to be wondering what the heck is about to happen to me because my world has not been safe in any way up to this point. So causes and risk factors are really interesting to me. And these I'm getting from WebMD, Medical News Today, Pete Walker's book, and the National Institute of Health, which you know is a government agency. So causes and risk factors, repeated physical or emotional abuse or abandonment. Neglect, childhood, infancy, infancy and childhood neglect that's ongoing, living in a politically unstable area where you have no idea what the heck's going to happen. Regular exposure to danger, exposure to people you know are going to harm you and you can't get out of it. Being a prisoner of war, repeatedly witnessing violence or abuse, ongoing DV, you're more likely to develop complex PTSD if you were neglected or abandoned by your mother at a very early age. My my bells just went off there, did yours? My mom, I'm I'm gonna sidetrack, I'm gonna tell you some personal stories in between some of this. We'll come back to that. Um, The trauma lasted more than two years. Escape or rescue were unlikely due to circumstances. Experience multiple traumas. You were harmed by someone close to you. So let's let's talk about let's talk about some of these. I'm going to give you examples for me. I cannot speak for anyone but myself. These are things that I encountered. Other people may have encountered different different things, different experiences. My earliest memory of my mother. I was probably three or four, probably four. And we lived in this little town called Midland, Texas. She was on the phone. I had been sent to my room and a tooth came out. I go to my mom and I told, I'm holding this tooth. And I said, mom, this just came out. And I was told it was probably a piece of popcorn that I we had eaten the night before. It's not a big deal. And she, com- she continued her conversation with, with whomever she was speaking with. Said, Mom, Mom, no, this is a tooth. And it took me, you know, I was a little kid, so I timing here is a little bit off. It took me a little bit to to get her attention to realize, hey, a tooth's just fallen out of my mouth. Finally, when she realized that I had a tooth that had come out, her reaction was much different because I was too young to be losing teeth. And um, that's I don't remember a lot about that after that. But there were a lot of things like that with my mom when I was little that really instilled in me abandonment, neglect, and worthlessness. I have very few pictures of my mother holding me. I'm always with someone else. Generally, I'm with my grandmother or my Aunt Susan. Those are the people I'm, I'm generally with or my great-grandpa, one of my uncles. They're the ones that I felt safe with. They're the ones that took care of me. My mother really did not want me. She made it pretty clear that she did not want a child. She was telling me, one of the things I remember clearly, and I had to have been three or four years old, being locked out of the house in the backyard, banging on the door, mom, let me in, mom, let me in, mom, let me in. No, you're staying outside. As I continued to bang on the door, my mother, and this happened multiple times, would open the door and say, if you don't stop it, I'm going to put you in the alley. But in our house there, there was an alley where we put all of the garbage cans. I am going to put you in the garbage can and the garbage men are going to pick you up and take 
you away. Well, I remember one time telling her, I'll just tell them to bring me back home. And she very angrily said, they don't speak English. Now stay outside, stay away from the door. Okay, so I'm walking around not really knowing what the heck to do. Is my mother going to give me away to the garbage men? People that don't speak English and I'm never going to be brought home again? My dad was traveling all the time, even before he became a corporate pilot. He was traveling a lot. He was away from the house a lot. When he did come home, he tried to be the best dad he could be. But there was also a, a real concern about being very quiet quiet when dad was home. We couldn't make noise. We were not allowed to say one word when he was on the phone. We couldn't whisper. Whisper was worse than talking. I remember having to ask permission as a little girl, and I'm judging my ages by the houses we lived in, ask permission from my mother to sit in my dad's lap. Now, I need to make a disclaimer here. I love my parents. Probably about 30 years ago, I went through an adult children's of alcoholics class, which was very interesting. And I got through about the middle of it. And I was very, very, very angry with my parents. And I didn't know why. I didn't know why. I was just so angry. By the time we finished the class, it was a 12-step program. But by the time we finished that, I came away realizing something that was a true gift in my life. And that was my parents had traumas of their own. They were both raised by single mothers. My dad was not wanted. My mother basically raised her younger sister or sisters. Their mothers were working all the time. My dad, oh my gosh, my grandmother told me herself that she would put him in a playpen, go to work, and have the neighbor change him every four hours. So my, my dad had really no um, human interaction as an infant. And it, it brings me back to thinking about the kids in the Romanian orphanages that people have adopted and have had so much trouble with because they don't know how to interact as with that one-to-one touch that's something you need from birth. We did not get that. You know, even when I looked at my baby book, it was very, it's very impersonal. It's things like it rained for three days after birth. Nothing like, oh my gosh, she's so cute. She's, she did this, she did that. Uh, None of that. It was just, it's very, very impersonal. And my mother, I realized went through traumas of her own. Like I said, I loved her to death. I, I wish she was still here. We developed a great relationship afterward, but she did not know how to parent a child. She did not want me. She told me she did not want me. She wished she had not gotten pregnant with me and she was going to give me to the trash man. That doesn't instill a lot of confidence when you're the person you're, you're looking to for care is telling you they want to throw you away. So let's get back to this here. There are several things of this child, witnessing childhood, childhood abuse, neglect, or abandonment. Yes, very much. I was, I was neglected in every way, except for I did have shoes. I did have clothes and I had food, but it was not food I would feed my kids. But I don't know if that was like a cultural thing being brought up in the South or if it was a financial thing. We didn't speak finances with my parents. My my parents didn't really speak about anything like that. Now, when it comes to the trauma that lasts a long time. In my case, the trauma for me has lasted a lifetime. I would say until the last two years is when I was able to see what was happening, the grips that it had on me, and sort of let go in a way and reframe things. Reparent myself, which is really weird at first. Here you are, six years old, and you're telling this little five-year-old girl that's really not there, but she really is there. It's okay, Terry. I have your back. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. You're safe with me. I will protect you. And believe it or not, that has really helped tremendously. And it gets here to escape or rescue were unlikely or impossible. 
the only escape or rescue I had was with my grandmother or my aunt. My other aunt as well, but she was married at this time. So I'm going to sort of take her out of the equation because she was married and attending to her family where my other aunt was closer in my age and she was not married. I was kind of dumped on her a lot, I feel. And even as an adult, I feel guilty for that, but I feel, I feel, I know it's not my responsibility, but she was very much taken advantage of uh, as a free babysitter, sort of like my youngest daughter was. So the people in my, I felt safe with my grandmother, my great-grandfather, several of my uncles, one of my great aunts, and my Aunt Susan. I can remember, you know, when you're a little kid and you go throw yourself on the bed and you're like crying, you're like, mama, 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 mama. No, it's really weird. I cried, Dina, 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 Susan, Susan, Susan. Dina was my grandmother. Susan was my aunt. Those were the names that I would cry out when I was in trouble or when I felt abandoned. I would cry out for my aunt or I'd cry out for my grandmother. Mainly my grandmother. She was my main caretaker that I saw. Um, I knew when I was with them all the time, I was 100% safe. I would have food when I was hungry. I would be played with. I would be talked to. I would be held. I would be read to. I can remember my aunt reading me books. I can remember my grandmother reading me books. I can remember my grandmother helping, uh, letting me help her with projects. What I remember with my mother is we needed, we were supposed to, I was supposed to stay away. Like I said, I can't really, I, I can't, I'm not going to speak for my, my, my siblings on that. We live, they lived in Big Spring. We lived in Midland and our main mode, we had a car, but our main mode of transportation at that time was by airplane. My father was a pilot. He was, he had his private pilot's license. He was going on to get his corporate license. And I remember being so excited when we were going to get into the plane because it meant I was going to the farm. Whenever we were getting the airplane to go to my grandmother's house, I had, I, it was just such euphoria. I knew I'd be taken care of. I knew I would be with my grandmother, my great grandfather, one of my aunts, or one of my grandmother's brothers. I would be fed. I would be comforted. I would be played with, played with, and I would be acknowledged. When I was with him, I felt like a person. When I was with my 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 mother, I felt like a byproduct of marriage, and. That went on throughout my teen years into my adulthood, probably until I was almost 29 years old. Like I said, I don't blame my mother at all. My mother had trauma of her own. And if I couldn't figure out how to deal with my trauma, how can I expect my mother, who didn't have the resources at the time, to figure out with her trauma? She didn't talk. That's how she dealt. She didn't talk. Her daughter, on the other hand, likes to talk a lot. So that, that was really my only escape. Uh, from the situation when we lived in Midland, I knew I could get to my grandmother, my grandfather, my aunt and my uncles and my great aunt and our great aunts and I was going to be okay. I didn't realize this until just a few months ago and I spoke with my aunt about it actually and she said, yeah, your timeline is right. We moved to Midland. My horse disappeared, which is a long embarrassing story, but my horse went away. I was never told anything about my horse was going to be going away. I'm six. How am I supposed to know these things? Well, let me, before we moved, we were, we were getting ready to move to Midland. I didn't know it at the time. My granny had died and my granny was, from what my grandmother told me, I don't have any, I don't know what you would call them, memories that I have. I may have body, body memories from her. The only memory I have from her is her picking me up off the floor, but she died when I was rather young, so I kind of questioned that memory. My grandfather had a stroke and was in the hospital, and I can remember being on him and just loving on him, and I can remember him trying to speak with me. And I would tell my dad, you know, Dad, Grandpa's trying to talk to me. No, Terry, he can't talk. Well, I knew very well he was talking, and then I can remember going into the funeral home and seeing him there. I didn't understand death at the time. No one really explained death to me at the time. All I knew was here's this man whose lap I would sit in all of the time when he was playing dominoes with his friends. He would take me around the mountain that was called Signal Mountain in, in Big Spring. 
He would take me to the chicken coop. We would go and gather eggs in the mornings. You know, I felt safe with him. He had a stroke and he died. At least my memory is that it was a stroke. It could have been something else. Then, okay, Granny and Grandpa died. We moved to Midland where I had no one. My aunt wasn't there anymore. My grandmother wasn't there anymore. My grandpa was gone. My One of my aunts had already died. One of my uncles had already died of a heart attack. And then my uncle Walt died right after we moved to Midland. So I had like four or five deaths of the only people I felt completely safe with within about an 18-month span, maybe a two-year span. Then I can remember sitting in first grade and my dad came to get me out of class. And this is really the only thing I remember about this, but my dad came and got me out of class and my grandmother's cousin, which they were more like sisters, they were really close in age, had been killed in a car accident. She went away. I wasn't really very close to her, but I was learning people left, people took off. My parents would send us out to stay with my aunt, and that was always a great time when she, I think she lived in Abilene. No, I, I don't know where she lived. She lived, she lived, I think she lived in Abilene. She would send us out there, and it was always wonderful because my uncle was there, my aunt was there. Once again, we were safe, we had food, we were not ignored, and we felt like we were people. It was kind of like Geppetto and Pinocchio, you know, I want to be a real boy. That's kind of how I felt when I was around that part of my family. It's like, oh, I'm a real girl. So my experience with CPTSD may vary greatly from yours or someone else's because I did have a solid foundation, although it was fluid because I was with my parents most of the time. I did have that chance to connect. And I think part of me knew that and that stayed with me, although everyone I was loving was dying. And if we get back to these notes here, experience multiple traumas. Yes, my grandfather, my great grandfather died, my uncles died, my aunt died all within two years when I was three to five. Then we moved away when I felt safe, as I was explaining. And then my closest aunt moved away. And then my grandmother died. My grandmother died when I was 15 and I had to watch her die with cancer. That was a very devastating thing for me because she was the last one left that I knew loved me beyond, beyond. I knew my dad loved me. I didn't know my mother loved me at the time. Uh, but when, when Dina died, it rocked my world. One of the other things that they have on here, some uh, risk factors for developing CPTSD, is if you were harmed by someone close to you. Well, yes, my family doctor molested me from the time I was probably six or seven years old until I was about 17 years old. I think after 17, I stopped going to him. And my parents never knew because my parents had, had taught me by that time it was not safe to speak to them. They did not want to hear what we had to say, what I had to say. I need to keep this on me and not my siblings. And it, it talks about if you were harmed by someone close to you or witnessed violence. I don't remember violence towards me from my dad. I would be spanked, of course. I do remember witnessing violence from my father to my brother's. I remember watching my baby brother being thrown across the bedroom into a wall and watching him sort of, he, he, I don't even think it was a year old, sliding down the wall to the floor. I remember that. And I remember when we would eat, my parents never ate with us. We had to eat by ourselves alone in the kitchen. And my mother wasn't a really great cook, and so we didn't, there was not a lot of stuff we liked to eat that she made. I had a brother that had problems with with um, some of the foods that my mother made. I don't know if it was a check texture issue or if he just didn't like it. But I can remember one time he was eating macaroni and cheese, and he was gagging it to eat it. And my dad was like, you're going to eat it. You're going to clean that plate. You're going to eat that. And my brother threw up at the kitchen table and was made to eat that. 
and he could not get up or go to bed until that plate was finished. And I was horrified. That really scared me. I, I, I didn't know how to take that. And then there was another, another time that I vividly remember my brother was getting up. I mean, he was a picky, picky, picky eater. I don't know why. We are not close at all today. He would, I remember one time my mother had made like a pot roast or something, and he was taking bites of food and he was sitting on them to look like he had cleaned his plate. But when he got up to walk away on his behind, it was filled with pot roast and potatoes and carrots and all kinds of stuff. And he, he got, he got pretty severely beaten over that is my recollection. So, you know, things like that, when witnessing things by your parents who are supposed to care for you and love you and take care of you, when you witness things like that, it changes your world. It really does. It changes your world. There was another thing um, that they were talking about, wit, uh, witness prisoners of war, wit, wit, being in a violent situation. At that time, I was like six years old and the Vietnam War was going on. And my uncle, my dad's brother, was in the army in Vietnam. I watched the news every night. And I have, I think, this idealized version of my uncle. We, we were not very close to him because my dad's parents farmed, my, my dad's mother farmed all of the kids out. And my uncle David was raised by his grandparents, which I wish my father had been. And my dad really looked up to David, and I looked up to David, and I watched the news every night. And I can remember watching that kind of grainy green. If you're my age, you remember the grainy green kind of um, footage we were getting back from the war from Vietnam. I looked at every soldier. I was trying to find my Uncle David. And to me, he was a war hero. He was someone I could look up to, even though he wasn't really in my life. I had this great admiration for him. One, my dad did. And two, he was out there doing things that a lot of people wouldn't do. So I had this huge admiration. And I was, I was always afraid that something was going to happen to my Uncle David. And it was, it, was, it was terrifying. And I don't know if that really counts as living in a, a, a place of war or not. But when you're seeing protests, you're seeing destruction, you're seeing war, you're, and you know your uncle is over there flying, you know that he's been shot down. You know that he's been, I don't know how many of the stories that his mother told me are correct because she really couldn't believe be believed in a lot of things. But I guess David was shot down a time or two. He was very, he was very wounded. I remember um, my aunt telling me there were things that he wouldn't even tell her about that he had experienced in Vietnam. So that, that was just, it was just real scary. It was very, it was a very tumultuous time to grow up. And I'm going to give you some more personal examples in a minute. But let's get back to some of the symptoms. We went over the causes of complex PTSD. So some of the symptoms of complex PTSD, we know the hyperarousal is one of them. We know being flight and fight. There's something called the four F's. Flight, fight, fawn, and freeze. We're going to talk about those in another episode. But some of the common symptoms for PTSD and common PTSD, uh, complex PTSD are things such as avoiding, as I said before, avoiding situations where the trauma took place, avoiding people with whom the trauma took place. There was a lot of trauma as I was an adult that involved people. I do not want to hear their names. I don't want them spoken in front of me because that trauma was so, it was like kind of digging in an open wound, if you will. Dizziness and nausea, difficulty sleeping and concentrating my entire life. And there is a theory that a lot of the children that have been diagnosed with ADHD actually are experience, experiencing symptoms of childhood trauma and neglect. Oh, I, I just read my paper over here, and I, I don't know why I didn't have this in notes. 
at the time, with I'm telling you all these traumas that had happened and all the people that had left in my life, and I was sort of, my world was rocked. Have it right me here. It was my granny, my grandpa, my Aunt Vi, my Uncle Tex, my Uncle Walt, my Aunt Bobby, when my dad came to get me. Uh, we I witnessed a motorcycle accident in front of my house where the motorcycle went other under a milk truck. Remember those? Went under a milk truck and the motorcyclist was, was killed. And then there was a girl up the street. I tell my mother about this. There was a girl up the street that had continually tried to molest me and one of my siblings. And we weren't, my mother didn't believe us. And we were still made to play with this girl. And she would get us in the closet. And I, I just remember running home. I don't remember if anything happened. I just remember running home. I do remember being very afraid of bathtubs the regular bathtub. I, I, I cannot take a bath in those. I will hyperventilate and go into a panic attack. It's crazy. So symptoms and causes. Let's get back to this. I just go down rabbit holes. I am sorry about that. One of the biggest things here with medical news today is absence of a support or safe network. While I did have a support network with my grandmother, my aunt, my aunts and my uncles, it was short-lived. It was for a very limited time in my life. And then I was on my own with my parents. My dad was not home. There's there's a test called the ACEs test. We'll go on that on another episode, but it scores you on childhood traumas. I think I have all, but there are 10 questions. I have nine of them. And one of them, uh, my, my therapist had counted as, or one of my therapists had counted my father as being um, incarcerated because he was not home. He was never home. We never saw my dad. We might see him three days a month. So the ACEs test is something that they use to, to um, diagnose my complex trauma. They also have here in medical news today, um, a death by suicide in the family. There was always talk around me. But it's nothing that I really remembered as weird or strange. But there was talk about my uncle being murdered and then my, my cousin coming home and he was murdered. And then my other uncle supposedly was shot while he was cleaning his shotgun. But the way when I pull up the autopsy, autopsy report, thank you, Internet, I can pull up his autopsy report. And I don't know how you can shoot yourself in the back with a shotgun. And I remember my dad talking about that. And I think that was right after my Aunt Vi died. And so I don't know. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of trauma. I'm watching adults deal with it. A lot of it I don't remember because I was really too young to understand. All I knew, these people are leaving. They're leaving. The people I love the most are leaving. So we get to um, substance, de substance dependence in the family is a risk. My father was an alcoholic. My His mother was an alcoholic. My dad was not just an alcoholic. My father was a raging alcoholic. He was not ugly or mean when he was drunk, but he was a little too friendly. That made me very, very uncomfortable, probably because I'd never really been held by my dad. I had never been touched by my dad that I could remember. So yeah, we had substance dependence. I remember getting up 10 o'clock in the morning. My dad's pulling, pouring himself a glass of vodka. Once again, I, my father and my mother, I do not hold them responsible for my complex trauma. My parents had trauma of their own. They were dealing with their own demons. I love them deeply. So I need to keep that disclaimer in there. I'm not blaming them in any way. They had no idea what was going on. Growing up in an unsafe environment. Yes, my, my, my house was very unsafe. My mother, whatever she could get, she would throw at us. We didn't know the boundaries. I didn't know the boundaries in my house. With my kids, they knew if they were going to get a spanking, there were three things that they would get a spanking for, or they knew what was going to happen. We never knew if we broke a, a, a rule or not. We didn't know what the rules were. We didn't know what the laws were. The only rules that we really knew were you don't talk when your dad is asleep, you don't whisper, and you have to ask to sit in his lap. Those were really kind of the only rules that we knew of. And I think I really need to put another disclaimer in here. Having one or all of these, not everyone who has experienced this will develop, go on to develop complex PTSD. 
But I think because of my choices in my life as an adult, it continued to re-traumatize me each and every time. So I have in here page 10 of uh, Pete Walker's book. Pete Walker graciously gave me permission to talk about his book and link back to him. So we'll do that now. What did I have on page 10? This again goes to the origins of CPTSD. And Pete Walker writes that many dysfunctional parents or families react contemptuously when their child is crying. Yes, there was a lot of contempt. I don't remember my own, but I can remember it with one of my brothers that I was old enough to remember that from. They didn't like crying. And it was... um, You know, it's how babies call for attachment and attention and to meet that primal need. And my parents just did not meet it. I don't think they knew how. Contempt, he says, is extremely traumatizing to a child and at best extremely noxious as an adult. Contempt is a toxic cocktail of verbal and emotional abuse. A deadly amalgam of denigration, rage, and disgust. Rage creates fear and disgust creates shame in the child in a way that soon teaches her to refrain from crying out, from ever asking for attention from her caregivers. Before long, the child gives up on seeking any kind of help or connection at all. The child's bid for bonding and acceptance is thwarted and she's left to le- she's left to suffer in the frightening despair of abandonment. Particularly abusive parents deepen the abandonment. Now my parents I don't think were particularly abusive. Children who are made to feel worthless and powerless devolve into learned helplessness and can be controlled with far less energy and attention. Cult leaders also use contempt to shrink their followers into absolute submission after luring them in with brief brief phases of fake unconditional love. And that is another thing that we experienced. Before I met my husband, he was in a cult for quite a few years. It was devastating. It had an impact on our family. It had an impact on his family. And it was it quite the story that is not mine to tell. P. Walker also says, furthermore, CPTSD can also be caused by emotional neglect alone. I know, I know without a doubt I had that. You know, my aunts would tell me that, you know, my mother would tell me what a horrible baby I was. And I remember my aunts telling me, I don't understand that because you were an adorable baby. But I, you know, it's hard to reconcile because my mother told me forever what a terrible baby I was. Emotional neglect also typically underlies most traumatizations that are glaringly evident. Parents who routinely ignore or turn their backs on a child's call for attention, connection, or help abandon their child to unimaginable amounts of fear, and the child eventually grows up and succumbs to depressed, death-like feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. These types of rejection simultaneously magnify the child's fear and eventually add a coating of shame to it. Over time, this fear and shame begets a toxic inner critic that holds the child and later adult totally responsible for his parents' abandonment until he becomes his own worst enemy and descends into the bowels of CPTSD. Thank you, Pete Walker, for allowing me to share this. So not being able to have your parents to go to. I remember having a bully. His name was Richard. And I would go, I had to walk to school. Every freaking day he would steal my lunch money. I would tell my mother and my mother wouldn't do anything. So one day I figured, you know, I'm going to have to take care of this myself. I walk, I was scared to death walking home. This was like in first or second grade. Because he would stop me and he would want, on the way, walking to school, because he would stop me and he'd want my lunch money. I can still see him with his red hair, his plaid shirt, freckles, big, to take my money. What was lunch money back then? Like 25 cents, 35 cents, I don't know, something like that. And he took it. 
And my mother wouldn't do anything. So the next time, or down the road at some point, I put rocks in my lunchbox. And I told him I didn't have any money. And if he didn't leave me alone, I was going to hit him with my lunchbox. He's like, oh, yeah, little girl, what are you going to do? You're going to hit me with your lunchbox. Well, I slug him in the stomach with my lunchbox. And he never bothered me again. So I think that's, you know, kind of, I built, that was showing me a little bit of tenacity that I could take care of myself, but I didn't believe it. I was continually told I wasn't going to make it. I remember having the feeling at a young age, I will never be able to take care of myself because that's what had been modeled to me, that what had, that's kind of what had been told to me, that I wasn't worth it. And so I really did not feel I could take care of myself as an adult. And P. Walker here is talking about when the trauma is so repetitive and ongoing and no help is available, the child may become so frozen in trauma that the simple symptoms or the, excuse me, the symptoms of C, simple CPTS, the symptoms of simple PTSD set in. However, if a person, if a child is affected by ongoing, continual fam familial abuse, neglect, and abandonment, profound emotional abandonment. The trauma will manifest as CPTSD in emotional flashbacks. Now, CPTSD is a lifelong condition. It doesn't leave. You're stuck with it. You got to learn how to deal with it. And blaming your parents just ain't going to work. Because then you have that extra layer of negativity and bitterness there. I didn't want that. And I think I was fortunate enough to realize that my parents, while my mother was very contemptuous when I was a child, they were stuck in their own trauma. It wasn't like they set out to ruin my life. They didn't set out to destroy the person that I could have become. It just sort of happened. They did not have the tools now, if we're going to talk about one, one of the big symptoms, flashbacks, I've been having flashbacks. My husband will say something. My, my, one of my kids will say something. A friend will say something. Um, I've gone to where I cut people off a lot because I don't want to have to go through the flashback. But this was my birthday. This last weekend, I turned 60. All through my childhood, my parents had never really gotten anything. We were never celebrated on our birthdays. I, I don't remember many birthdays at all. So I always sort of did my own thing. My kids, when they were home, did a huge birthday thing. And I know it sounds kind of silly, but it triggered a huge abandonment thing in me. It, it, this weekend triggered huge emotional um, voids that had been there. And when you're married to someone, you kind of expect them to take care of you and have your back. And I didn't feel that in any way. And it, I, I can't say it was just his fault. A lot of it was that abandonment being triggered again, that neglect being triggered again, that I wasn't worth buying a gift for, that I wasn't worth asking me what I wanted for my birthday. You know, it wasn't really my birthday. It was the fact that those old records were playing. You're not worth it, Terry. You're just not worth it. And I used to have those, you know, in relationships, if a relationship was would end, I would panic. I would panic because I would feel like I was on alone. And I felt that, felt that I could not live. I mean, I really felt it. It was soul crushing. I didn't feel I could live. It was one more person. When I look back at it now, I know it was an emotional flashback that I was being abandoned again. I could have loved the person or not loved the person, but it was that little girl that had been abandoned all those years that was reacting. It wasn't me. You know, in my stage now, I can look back and say, thank gosh, that didn't happen because that would have been a disaster. But it was kind of embarrassing. I mean, that would be my go-to. I don't want to live anymore because I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it to you. And I think that speaks almost also to the problem with emotional regu regulation. Yes, I have had in the past problems with emotional regulation where a situation would hit me much more emotionally than it would hit another person. I can look back and I can see that. 
I can see where I reacted to my children, my own children that I wanted the best for. I overreacted in situations where I should not have. And there are particular instances that come to mind that mortify me, that I could even have done something like that. I need to forgive myself because it was something with an emotional regulation that was wrong. It was a flashback to before. It was my parents all over again. And I did this to my kids. It, you know, it's, it's terrifying to think of something like that. Then we get to persistent negative thoughts about yourself. As I said before, I never thought I was worth anything. What do I have? I have this face. That's it. I would get comments from my dad, like when I was a little girl, we would meet a lot of his clients and they would say, oh, you have such a beautiful little girl. And he would say, well, she's okay for a girl. Well, I know what my dad was trying to do now. He was trying for me not to be egotistical or have this, you know, whatever. But what he did was really diminish me that first I was okay for a girl. It kind of made me feel like he never wanted a girl. Although I know that wasn't true. It just kind of was the way it made me feel. And that I wasn't okay. The only thing I had at that point that I knew of was I could make myself look okay and that's very shallow. It's very, very shallow. But that's all I really had. Um, everything I, was, I had that I was thinking of that I had been told, it was all wrong. You know, it, nothing was right. Difficulty in sustaining relationships. Okay, difficulty in, re, in sustaining relationships, very much so. I will get up close to a person and then I'll back off because I'm afraid they are going to hurt me. So I need to get out of it. Or I become too needy, too, too clingy because I'm afraid I'm going to lose something and not necessarily lose them, but lose a part of myself because they're leaving me I, and I am not worth it once more. So when I look back on the string of relationships I had, and we'll go into that maybe on the next episode or the one after that, how these each and every one of these relationships affected me. And then there was one relationship I had that actually did a lot of healing, but it was very, very damaging at the same time. So relationships are very difficult to na navigate when you have no base, when you have no foundation, when you have no self-confidence, you have no self-worth. Everything becomes a fight. It's a struggle continually. This is a paragraph from Beverly Ingalls. In Beverly Ingalls, Healing Your Emotional Self, I have one little paragraph here. When there is no safe attachment figure the child can turn to for comfort, that child learns everyone is dangerous and not to be trusted. This means that some trauma survivors can have deep social anxiety and social phobia. And I had that. I had that. I, when I moved to Oregon, I thought, told myself it was going to be a fresh start, but you know what? It was all service level, all service level. There was one girl in my life that I can think of that I have had a deep, less than, I mean, a much more deep relationship with, and we have just recently reconnected, and I'm very thankful for that. She's really one of the only people that I thought I could talk to and not be judged. Then I want to get back real quick to the physical symptoms. I don't know why my notes are so misconstrued right now. Well, yeah, because my mind is like a mess. The physical symptoms, I have been plagued with physical things my entire life. My, I would have stomach, stomach aches. I would have headaches. I would have things that would happen that were just weird. And there was no explanation for it. I was just in the hospital this, this weekend and they can't figure out what's going on. And I asked them finally, after reading through this book, I said, couldn't this be emotionally brought on? Can it be manifested by a lot of the stuff that I've gone through? They don't know what I've gone through. I asked a question for my psychiatrist and my therapist, um, but it, it gave me a little bit of relief. I mean, the ongoing allergies, neck and back pain, headaches and migraines, 
thyroid problems, chronic fatigue, insomnia. Oh my gosh. Yeah. A lot of physical, if you think about it, it has to come out somewhere. All of this damage cannot happen and not have it explode in your face or explode somewhere. One of the things, if, if you recognize yourself in any of these things that I've spoken about, you know, I'm sharing my story. I'm being very open, very, very transparent here. And it's going to get even more transparent because my feeling is if I can help one person, then I've done my job. And I think it's really important to be able to look at yourself objectively and say, hey, I see myself in that. What happened? Is it really me? Did something happen? What's going on? And try to objectively figure this out. See a therapist. There is no shame in seeking a therapist. It is the strong that want to take care of themselves. I, you know, I shouldn't say that because there are people that are just too afraid because of all the trauma that they've been through. But it takes a great deal of courage to really want to work out those root problems. I wouldn't speak of my childhood until probably maybe six months ago. Try and remember and validate your childhood experiences. Realize that it wasn't your fault. You were just a little bitty kid. How are you supposed to take care of this? When I was speaking with my aunt, she was crying because she said she felt so bad there was nothing she could do. She watched what was going on. And there was nothing she, she could do. And I remember saying, Susan, you were like 12 or 13 years old. What could you do? Really, what could you do? There was nothing you could do, especially back, you know, in the 60s. There was nothing she could have done. And so I really want to make sure that she knows and you know if you feel guilty because you didn't do something when you were too little to do something, it's not your fault. These adults had us like, what, I guess, you know, what can you do? There's nothing you can do. There was nothing, nothing. You feel bad about it and you wish you could have done something, but that's your adult self-speaking. That's not the child of the age you were when that was happening. You know, I think one of the things too, things keep coming to mind as, as, as we go on with this. I can remember I had been riding my, my bicycle and I wasn't, I had a 10 speed. I had saved all my money up. My dad took me to buy it. I bought a 10 speed and I was riding without my hands and somehow I flipped and I put my arms out grab my, grab the ground. I mean, put my arms straight out to stop the fall. I couldn't move. I couldn't, my leg was swelling. I could watch it turning purple like or blue. I could just watch it swelling up my arm. I couldn't twist it. There was a woman that stopped to pick me up and took me home. And when we got home, my mother was there. You know, this was like way before cell phones. My mother was there and it took me five or six hours to convince her I needed to go to the hospital, that I could not move my arm. And she was just ugly and rude. And there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Well, sure enough, I got to the hospital. My mother gets out, walks ahead of me. I'm hopping along. A woman comes and brings me a wheelchair, takes me in. Yes, my ankle was messed up. I had a broken arm. And my mother did my math homework for me. During that time, she was supposed to be helping with my, with my homework, but she got frustrated and she took my math and she did my math homework for me. The only class I failed in that school, in that year was math. And I, you know, what could she say when she saw the report card? I mean, that's, she's the one that did all the work on that. And I felt bad about that. I mean, I have these guilty feelings for things that happened to me that I had no control over. You guys, realize, do some research. I'm telling you, these books are magnificent. Healing Your Emotional Self by Beverly Engel. I it, I, these are not sponsored, but I will put links in the description box for them. And I cannot speak highly enough of Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker or The Tao of Fully Feeling, Harvesting Forgiveness Out of Blame by Pete Walker. I will put those links 
in the show notes below. Hope you guys have a fantastic week and we are going to get on with episode seven next Tuesday, 5 a.m. Please listen on the podcast platforms if you can. That's going to help it a lot. If you're watching on YouTube, please remember to like, share, comment. It helps the algorithm. It helps this information get out to other people that could benefit from knowing they are not alone in their fight. I will talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at DiggingThroughDominoes.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.